Welcome to the Let Me Halal Extra podcast, brought to you by M-Gage Action. This is the Muslim American podcast, where we dissect today's political climate, tease apart hypocrisy, and gear up for elections. We'll understand how American politics is changing, and how we can be a force that shapes it. From the top minds in politics and social justice, let me halal at ya. Hi, everyone. My name is Nadia Alarakia, and I am the host of Let Me Halal At You. This is M-Gage Action's new podcast. Today, we have two very knowledgeable guests that we're really looking forward to speaking with. We have Wael Alzayat, who is the CEO of M-Gage, and we have Haley Soifer, who is the Executive Director of Jewish Democratic Council of America. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Why don't we take a few minutes and you guys introduce yourself if you want to provide some background and a little bit about the organizations that you currently represent. Haley, why don't we start with you? Great. Well, I am Executive Director of the Jewish Democratic Council of America, which is an advocacy organization formed in 2017 to serve as the voice of socially progressive and pro-Israel Jewish Democrats. We are uh, not solely an Israel organization, which is important to note because there is the perception perhaps that many Jewish organizations do solely focus on that issue. Um, We focus on, on many issues that relate to Jewish values, and the majority of our advocacy agenda actually relates to domestic issues, including combating anti Semitism. I came to this role after uh, 16 years in government. I served uh, for four members of Congress in national security roles, most recently Senator Kamala Harris from California, and in the Obama administration with Wael as senior policy advisor for our former ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power. I also served on the Obama campaign in 2008 as the Jewish vote director in Florida. That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Well, your turn. Go ahead. I'm Chief Executive Officer of Engage and Engage Action, uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit, civic engagement, uh, education, and issue advocacy organization focused on the Muslim American community and ensuring that they are more civically and politically engaged and that issues that are important to our communities are front and center in our political discourse. So why don't you guys tell me a little bit about what motivated you both to do what you do and what ways have your paths been similar? Um, Haley, let's start with you. Well, after the election of 2016, it was very clear that our country was heading in a direction that, uh, first of all, was different than, than I envisioned. I thought I thought uh, that Hillary Clinton would win that election, uh, but in a way that uh, was going to fundamentally kind of challenge what had been uh, my role in government in terms of advocating for our values, working in an administration which was aligned with my values. Um, so I... I had to kind of reevaluate my path. I really didn't want Donald Trump to be the reason that I left government. But eventually I recognized that in order to effectively uh, both advocate for my values and uh, help to further this country on the path that I really wanted to see it go, I actually could do some more effectively helping to change the composition of Congress 
as opposed to working for one individual member. So I left The Hill in the summer of 2018 to do this role um, because I, I wanted to help elect Democrats who shared my values. And we were very effective in doing so. We, um, we endorsed 58 candidates in the midterm elections, 49 of them won. Um, and I would say um, all of them uh, share our values and our agenda. They're all Democrats and they, um, some of them are incumbents, but most of them were challengers. Uh, 28 of them unseated Republican incumbents. And uh, we're thrilled with the new composition of the 116th Congress and uh, working with many of those can now members and, um, and others to change the direction of our country. Yeah, that is definitely a great accomplishment and congratulations on <laughs> such a high percentage of uh, winners. I think it was definitely the election of the underdogs. <laughs> Certainly. And, and there was some, a lot of overlap, I think, between the candidates that we endorsed and those that Engage also uh, helped to, to uh, ensure that they won as well. Absolutely. While um, I'll repeat the question to you. So what, made it, what motivated you to do what you do? And in what ways have your paths um, been similar? So for me, after uh, 10 years of government service uh, at the Department of State, um, I really became troubled by the discourse in our in our uh, political system, uh, specifically the rise in Islamophobic and anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric, uh, particularly from the uh, and within uh, the political right. Uh, but the problem has not been only limited to you know the Republican Party. You see it in the Democratic Party as well, uh, but more particularly in, in the Republican Party these days and. Obviously, with the uh, nomination of Donald Trump as the candidate to represent the Republican Party, it became very clear to me that we have a serious domestic problem on our hand. And I really just uh, could not see how I could keep focusing on international issues while our own uh, house was uh, so out of whack. And I felt that uh, now was the time to address some of those troubling trends that were on the rise, whether they were rhetoric or hate crimes or demonization of entire communities and religion. And I just realized the issue is that the Muslim American community is simply not active enough, organized enough, uh, politically uh, or consistently active, active enough through institutions, which uh, led me to engage in the, in the work that we do. Um, you know, since we are a uh, both a 501c3, which is a nonpartisan civic uh, uh, engagement organization, as well as 501c4, uh, potentially partisan uh, advocacy organization with a connected national PAC, it really gives us flexibility to be engaged in many different areas. And, and like uh, Haley mentioned, Engaged PAC was. Uh, very involved in the last midterm cycle where we had, I believe, 137 of our candidates at the local, state, and national level uh, be elected, which we're very excited about. And we believe is just really the beginning of greater Muslim American uh, political engagement. And that's really where we intersect. We intersected in our former careers and lives, uh, working as foreign policy practitioners for Ambassador Power. But now as heads of uh, emerging political organizations that focus on our respective communities. 
Um, yeah, definitely um, a great um, turnout. And we've gotten some numbers back from all of the work that MGAGE has done. And um, it's, it was very impactful and really good for the 20, um, 2018 midterm election, which naturally takes me into my next question, um, which is more around um, diversity. So we've seen a lot of firsts with a lot of the candidates that have um, won, um, ran for office and actually won. So we've seen the first transgender rep. We've seen the first openly gay governor who happens to also be a veteran. And we've also seen the first two Muslim women that have been elected into office. Um, what do you think this says about how accepting the American people are of diversity? And why do you think that now has become the time for Americans to embrace this diversity? Do you think that it's because we didn't have the right candidates in the past? Or do you think that um, there was one specific moment that kind of drove this rise of diversity? Um, Weil, can I start with you? You know, I, I don't believe in, 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 in a single explanation for why things happen. And so I, I really think it's a combination. It's a combination of um, those traditionally underrepresented communities or uh, constituencies stepping up and becoming more civically engaged, you know, more candidates uh, putting their name in the hat and in the arena, as we say. And we tracked, for example, over 120 uh, Muslim Americans who stepped up for the first time to run for office uh 2017 2018 uh so th there's that desire to do more and i suspect it's the same desire that drove somebody like me and haley to leave our previous careers and get involved there's also been really a trend of greater recognition of the importance of civic engagement and increase in uh voter registration among minority communities whether it's latino or the arab or the Hispanic or the Asian American Pacific Islander. And obviously, I think, you know, you see the recognition among, I believe, the majority of Americans that uh, we are facing a very unique moment in our history of uh, a resurgence in some of the forces that we thought we have uh, dealt with, uh, certainly since the civil rights movement, uh, uh, i.e., uh, the forces of exclusion, xenophobia, nationalism, supremacy, uh, things that we thought that, you know, World War II and, and, uh, and other great struggles of our times have dealt with, but clearly has not. And so it was a bit of a reaction, certainly. I'm hoping that uh, this experience will, will, will lead into a sustainable long-term movement. So we're talking about diversity and... Um because of all of the like diverse uh, candidates that have been now elected into office, the question is, do we think it's um, Americans becoming more accepting of that diversity? Or do we think that, you know, we just didn't have the right candidates in the past to help strive like what we want the um, representative makeup to be? I think it was the confluence of many factors. Um, but it's also important to note that the diversity that we as an organization, um, Jewish Democratic Council of America, really applaud in the 116th Congress um, is, is very apparent on one side, right? I mean, you have a remarkable number of well over 100 women, um, and, and the vast majority of them are Democrats. 
Um, and the other, uh, the minority communities that you mentioned that are now represented for the first time, uh, the first two um, Muslim American women um, and, and first Native American women, um, again, all Democrats. Um, so it is, I, I think that, you know, to see this diversity just on one side um, does allude to uh, the fact that at least among the Democrats, there's certainly acceptance, but also perhaps a real desire to have the makeup of Congress look more like our country. And perhaps that wasn't shared as much on the other side. Um, but also I do think that because we've seen um, so much change in, in just the past two years in the 116 Congress is so different than the Congress before it, uh, you do have to look at the 2016 election as a motivating factor, uh, motivating many uh, former Obama administration officials like us to run for office. And there, there's now uh, quite a few in the House, um, motivating um, a lot of women to run for various reasons. And, and now there's a record-breaking number, again, in the House. Um, and just motivating people, again, like us, who wanted to try to change the trajectory of their country. And clearly with the support of, of their communities and their districts to do so. So it didn't happen in a vacuum. Um, but I will say that it's, it's, it's a great first step. But Congress still doesn't look like uh, like our country quite yet, right? I mean, it's still um, not truly representative of the diversity of our country. So we, we still have more work to do in that regard. Yeah, I agree. We do have some more work to do. But I will say that I think in a span of two years, which in the grand scheme of things is really not a lot of time, we've seen quite a bit of um, um, change coming and, and hoping to see more. But, you know, like the, from, from even we discussed it in a previous pod, looking at how the um, outlook of even organizing and people that would come to your door to talk to you about, um, you know, registering to vote or whoever, the outlook of those types of people have completely changed to represent more of what um, the diversity that America brings. So I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about... Um, so, um, some of the Islamophobia and anti-Semitism that's been happening on a global scale. Um, so after the horrific acts, attacks on the mosques in New Zealand in the last couple of weeks, you guys um, decided to co-author an op-ed. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about why you have chosen to speak out together at this time and what this collaboration represents for you and your communities? We both recognize the troubling increase in hate crimes, and hateful rhetoric targeting ethnic and religious groups in the United States and abroad, whether it's white nationalists or others, uh, what I would call you know, these neo-fascists who uh, have come about for different reasons, but they have targeted uh, our community specifically, uh, and, and we've seen uh, the results of that. Consequences are uh, uh, congregations not feeling safe in their house of worship, uh, we saw what happened in Pittsburgh with uh, the attack on a synagogue there, uh, obviously the New Zealand attack, but, th but there's been a string of attacks in, in, in Europe against uh, Jews, against Muslims. And so we feel that it is incumbent about us to come together to confront this. That we understand uh, what it is uh, like to feel 
you know, scapegoated or accused of being uh, the cause behind everything that is wrong with the world. But we also feel that our communities have a lot of capacity to actually uh, lead the way in terms of uh, helping our country move forward into a better place on these issues because we have real expertise uh, in terms of addressing uh, social issues and political issues that may contribute to such behavior. You know, we have a lot of expertise in uh, the question of hate crimes, racism, but also in um, how do our gov uh, government agencies and officials look at the problem of gun violence in our society and address it in a way that uh, is not contrary to our constitution, but also looks at public safety and comes forward with realistic, prudent, uh, solutions. And our organizations also are perfectly positioned as big engagement political organizations to serve as the meaner for such a conversation. Haley, let's hear from you about why you guys decided to collaborate on this op-ed and what does it represent for your community specifically? Sure. Well, as, as what Al said, um, we, we worked together uh, previously in the Obama administration. And while we, we worked on some different regions uh, doing national security work, we were ultimately trying to further similar values in terms of a, a shared outlook of you know, the U.S. role in the world and American values, uh, furthering them internationally. So we knew each other and we knew the, the core values that we believed in. And after the administration, when Wa'al started Engage and I returned to the Hill um, at the beginning of the Trump administration, there was um, an increase in hate crimes impacting both of our communities. You know, I was tracking what Engage was doing even then. And as a Senate staffer, I worked on a, a resolution condemning the rise of hate crimes, whether it was motivated by anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or racism or other forms of intolerance. And there was a, a clear trend uh, that it was the, these attacks and um, the, just the vitriol were increasing. And uh, we worked together then. And I, again, was, was following what Engage was doing as I took on this role. And unfortunately, um, after the horrific attack in Pittsburgh um, and after the horrific attack in New Zealand, if there was any positive to come of it, it was that there seemed to be an opportunity to speak in one voice against what, what unfortunately was a, a root cause of both incidents. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that is the rise of white supremacy and its ideology and those who believe in it. And while you know, neo-Nazis and white supremacists and racists and anti-Semites and Islamophobes may have existed in the past, they really do appear emboldened by the policies and the rhetoric of this administration. And both of our organizations have tried to combat that. But given the fact that our two communities were targeted by, frankly, similar individuals who are motivated by similar ideologies, and our two communities were there for each other in the aftermath of these two attacks. And, and the Jewish community greatly appreciated the outpouring of support from the Muslim community in October. Um, it just seemed to make sense that we would come together to speak in one voice uh, against uh, the rise of hatred and intolerance that impacted both of our communities and beyond. It also sets a good example in my mind for both of your communities that um, 
you know, we're more similar than we are different in many, many ways, like you guys have outlined. So um, one more question before I want to spend a little bit more time on Islamophobia and white nationalism. But as we're talking about um, collaboration um, and cooperation between the two communities, um, do we think there's a possibility um, for Muslims and Jews to work together although they may disagree on some issues um, specifically related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, what would this, if you think there is, what would this cooperation look like? And what do you think are some of the ground rules? Um, obviously, there is so much potential for Muslims and, 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 and Jews in America to come together, uh, to have uh, cooperation, collaboration on addressing, uh, as I mentioned, problem of uh, anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and other forms of racism and bigotry. We have a role to play. We have a lot of resources and talent and capacity and experience. Uh, I think this is just beginning of, of that collaboration, which could extend to other arenas. I mean, our communities can, can play a role on the healthcare debate and, as I mentioned, gun violence and taxation and national security. Uh, our communities are, are, are extremely capable and, and they can support one another in support of our broader society. But obviously there's the, 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 the challenges uh, and I would say that they fall into two buckets. Uh, the first is obviously the, the, the Israeli-Palestinian question. Uh, the other one is anti-Semitism within the Muslim community and uh, Islamophobia within historical uh, uh, issues that I think are separate even from the Arab-Israeli conflict, where there are assumptions about the other uh, that is based perhaps on misconceptions or experiences that uh, have led to growth generalizations and stereotypes. And so whenever there is an opportunity to cooperate and work with one another, uh, there's always a potential for those challenges to rear their ugly head and derail both communities and, and, and force them to uh, take their eyes off what they were working on, what we think really matters, and confront one of those two issues I mentioned. And, and unfortunately, uh, it can turn very negative very fast. It's very polarized. Uh, there are loyalty tests for both communities that are extremely unhelpful. And actually pull people who might be who might otherwise agree on a lot of things away from each other uh but but i think there are ways to address them i think that we can agree to disagree on on some policies um uh, whether we do so as individuals or communities and of course we can't generalize because there's a wide range of views with regard to israel and both of our communities but importantly there's a way to talk about these difficult issues respectfully um, and without uh, invoking any negative stereotypes or generalizations about groups of people on the other side. Um, when there must be space in our political and public discourse for questioning the policies of our government um, or any government, frankly, and having that conversation occur respectfully. Um, and I think everyone's entitled to that. And what we've seen in Congress, especially recently, 
uh, were accusations, and, and I, I believe um, that it, it crossed the line in some instances where um, negative stereotypes about our community specifically were invoked, and that was um, offensive to many in the Jewish community, including our organization. It wasn't because uh, Representative Omar, so let's just name her in this most recent incident, uh, doesn't share certain views on Israel, though she doesn't share our views with regard to Israel. That's not why we spoke out. Most recently, it was because of the invoking of what we consider to be anti-Semitic stereotypes about our community. Um, so it's important to, to draw that distinction uh, because people can disagree on policy, but it's the way you go about talking about it. Um, so I would say in terms of a ground rule, if it's possible to have policy discussions and even disagree without generalizing about any one community, um, I think that that uh, can, you know, it, it creates um, a space for having difficult discussions, but in, uh, in the context of um, kind of respectful discourse. Communities have to recognize that there is no single narrative for each community. Nobody speaks on behalf the entire community. I know from the Muslim side, we always go, are no, there is no Muslim community. There are communities with an S. And, and research shows we are literally the most diverse religious group in America. Uh, socioeconomically, ethnically, educationally, racially, all of it. And so you have people with multiple views, and we have to, we have, as Muslims, we have to understand that on the Jewish side, there is also similar dynamics. Uh, we can't claim to be speaking for the other side. How you're speaking about uh, annexation, how you're speaking about Jerusalem, I think there has to be a willingness to at least believe that that is, that, that, that is uh, hurting us as well. Even if we disagree on, well, how do we fix that hurt? Uh, what is the reason for that hurt? With Ilhan uh, statement, we know we know Ilhan, and, and and we know you know that she's not an anti-Semite. We know that she did not think what was doing that she was doing was hurtful. Uh, we will obviously we wouldn't be uh, supportive of her and and proud of her. It clearly hurt some Jewish Americans, including uh, somebody like my friend Haley and the people she represents. And and I think we have to come to terms with that. Uh, but the difficulty for Muslim Americans in particular uh, we're discovering is that uh, it really has been a monopolization of how to speak about the, the conflict and, and ground rules that have been established with very little uh, input and representation by Arab and Muslims in, in, in America. Let's talk a little bit about Islamophobia and white nationalism. And I want to talk a little bit about gun control, too. Um, so as you guys noted in the op-ed, um, there has been a rise in hate crimes and hate organizations in the U.S. under President Trump. This has impacted both um, the Jewish community and the Muslim community. Um, how do you think that President Trump's policies contributed to this trend, and what can be done to counter it? Haley, let's start with you this time. From the very outset of his administration, but even going back to the campaign, uh, it was clear that he was going to support policies that were inherently discriminatory in nature. 
whether it was uh, the ban on refugees from Muslim-majority countries or um, just the way he talked about immigrants in general, um, you know, it was xenophobic. <clears throat> and as it related to the Muslim ban, it was Islamophobic uh, by definition. I mean, he explicitly targeted those countries with Muslim populations. And it was, um, there was an outpouring of support uh, for the Muslim community, for refugees uh, at that moment uh, from the Jewish community. It's important to know uh, because the, the Jewish community was, is overwhelmingly opposed to uh, President Trump's immigration policies writ large. But if you recall in February of 2017, um, those crowds at the airports, uh, there, there was a, there were a lot of a lot of Jews who who just didn't believe in this kind of policy, um, and one of the reasons being is that we 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 know the devastating consequences of of being turned away, of closing borders, um, and of discrimination based on religion and ethnicity, and we this is not consistent with our values, so. I just want to say that at the outset, because it really began with this administration uh, starting a policy that was inherently discriminatory and also uh, using language that was divisive and hateful, uh, targeting a wide range of groups um, and frankly, including even, even our own at times. Um, there's definitely uh, a, clear, a clear correlation between um, even the president's own rhetoric and the emboldening of anti-Semitism in our country. So it's been deeply troubling, um, and our community has been impacted, and we've polled on it, and we know just that by polling uh, Jewish voters in October of last year, and this occurred before the tragic event at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, that 70% of the Jewish community disapproves with the way Donald Trump has handled the rise of anti-Semitism in our country. So while people, especially recently, have pointed to anti-Semitism on one side, or what they consider to be anti-Semitism on one side, uh, it has certainly been a, a consistent theme in, in, on the Republican side as well, starting on the campaign with things that the president himself has said. So our two communities have definitely been impacted, and um, I think that really demonstrates the need to come together to speak out against it. Uh, because it, there's the same root causes of Islamophobia as there are to anti-Semitism. Um, it is, uh, you know, this xenophobic um, desire to um, to push out the other, um, and and really, uh, no matter which community is being targeted, I think we as um, religious minorities uh, who have been uh, impacted by this do need to come together to speak out against it in one voice. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, white nationalism and the rise of this on the global scale. Uh, so we're seeing a rise of um, white nationalism um, against our Jewish and Muslim brothers and sisters, both domestically and internationally. But in my opinion, um, I think that President Trump is a pawn in the game um, of the rise of white nationalism globally. I know a lot of this um, started you know, during the campaign trail in the United States, but started well before that. And we've seen other international elections that have had um, right-winged candidates that have, you know, come pretty close 
um, to winning the races. So do you guys have any insight on what's causing the, the rise of white, national, um, white nationalism and white power internationally? I almost think that the question in some ways underestimates <laughs> the impact of um, U.S. leadership in the world um, because people do look to us. And there's no question that there has been a proliferation uh, throughout the world of this ideology. Uh, and of course, it predated uh, Donald Trump. Um, so he is, of course, not, not the... Uh, you know, not the sole reason, not the impetus for this. Um, it won't, unfortunately, end with the end of his presidency, whenever that may be. Um, but we can't underestimate the, the impact of his words as the president of the United States. And we saw in the New Zealand uh, perpetrator's manifesto his, you know, admiration for the ideologies of, of at least what Trump has said uh, he saw him as a leader. Um, and, you know, we, we, are, we are the world's superpower. We are, people look to us. And, and we were, for a long time, a beacon of, of the kind of values uh, that Wael and I were fighting for in the Obama administration around the world. And, um, you know, with, with this election, that did change. And, and those you know, anti-Semites and Islamophobes and, and white supremacists throughout the world who, again, predated Trump, there's no question they feel emboldened by this. And the same goes for the leaders who, you know, may um, have held back from implementing certain policies in the past, but now feel that, well, if the President of the United States is doing it, uh, that they feel that they now have a pass to do it as well. And we've seen, uh, you know, a downsliding in turn, or backsliding in terms of democratic um, values and principles and freedoms, um, and an increase in um, in, in such uh, discriminatory policies and in hate groups around the world. Um, so there's no question that our own leadership or lack thereof, frankly, uh, in this administration, plays a, a very large role in that. And again, it's, it's not just Trump. I mean, it's also, uh, you know, those around him, uh, those who he chose to be in his administration or got, be alongside him in his campaign. Um, and from the perspective of the Jewish community, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been very troubling to see. Um, and, uh, you know, the epitome of it really was in the aftermath of Charlottesville for him to equate neo-Nazis uh, marching in the streets with those peacefully protesting them uh, and call, and including, you know, someone who was unfortunately murdered uh, and call both sides, you know, say they're very fine people on both sides. That, that was something that is forever seared in the minds of, of us as a Jewish community that is increasingly being uh, targeted. And unfortunately, it wasn't unique just to our community. We know that uh, the Muslim community, other communities, felt the impact of those words as well. Um, and so, too, did the white supremacists and neo-Nazis marching. They felt emboldened and legitimized by the president calling them very fine people. Uh, in the previous, you know, previous administrations, Republican and Democrat, 
they were seen as marginal and a fringe radical movement, but they have been given credibility by this president. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I wanted to talk a little bit about gun violence. So the Prime Minister of New Zealand took swift action after, uh, I would say, probably a week after um, the attacks that occurred at the mosques there and um, banned assault rifles and other weapons um, across the country. We have been trying to make some progress here domestically in the United States. And, um, you know, we're always given pushback that you know, it's the NRA and and the funds that the NRA brings in, you know, how do we get our leaders to understand or what is inhibiting them to pass firm legislation against gun violence specifically? We have to elect different leaders. We have to elect enough leaders who put public uh, interest ahead of their personal interest. That's key. The National Rifle Association is one of the largest and strongest lobby organizations in, in the country. And uh, they financially support uh, politicians who will ensure that uh, Americans have the easiest access to as many guns as possible. They're, they're, they represent the interests of the gun makers. And, and this is just simply a fact. And so you're going to need to find elected officials who... Uh, either from a moral standpoint or other reasons, while they may be uh, supportive of the Second Amendment, they believe that uh, it needs to be uh, uh, honored and respected uh, within reason. There has to be a balance that is, that is struck, and it begins with the lawmakers. The other part of it is, uh, and I fear this is a more difficult conversation, is the gun question has become part of the culture war. And there are those who believe that uh, to be a proper American, and, and I might even dare say a proper Christian, uh, and a proper conservative, uh, and a proper Republican, that you, you, you have to support access, unfettered access to guns. Not every Republican and not every conservative and not every Christian believes in that, but there is, a, there is I think, a very vocal uh, minority uh, within that camp, and 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 this is going to be a generational educational uh, uh, issue for them. But I think at a minimum is to have the right leadership, like we saw in New Zealand, with their prime minister and her, her cabinet making a very quick you know decision. Obviously, they don't have the constraints we do here domestically, but leadership at the top matters, and it, it can make a difference. And the majority of Americans do support. Uh, uh, proper gun legislation. I think it's also important to note that um, we've seen a lot of success come um, from campaigns that are run on small time, small one-time donations, um, the Bernie Sanders of the world, the AOCs of the world. Um, so if we can see more um, candidates running on those platforms, the, the dependency will be reduced on the National Rifle Association for those campaign funds, and then we can really start to see some traction. Um, Haley, do you have anything you want to add to that question? No, I think Wael um, definitely uh, laid out some of the policy uh, changes that need to be made, but I, I will just say that, um, again, this, this issue and the challenges of legislating on it really underscore uh, just how much elections matter because in the past few weeks for the first time in over 20 years the house passed two 
pieces of legislation uh, related to gun safety background check legislation that would make it harder for those who would perpetrate uh, acts of gun violence like we've seen in our communities and our schools to get those guns. So it just goes to show how important these elections are. There is a chance to make even more progress in 2020. Um, and it's, it's so important that we continue to work together on these issues to ensure that this kind of legislation, and believe me, there's, there's a slew of other bills. Background checks was just the first step that, that could actually get through. Uh, it's so important that we continue to work together to elect people who would actually pass these bills. And when you look at New Zealand's response to something like uh, what, what occurred in, New Z- in those mosques, it's unbelievable that in six days they were able to come together to ban assault weapons, or at least decide that they were going to ban assault weapons this month. That's remarkable. And uh, it's a really good example of uh, the kind of leadership that we clearly need and are lacking. We have made some baby steps to drive change, and the partnership that you guys um, are showcasing um, is a good sign of progress that should make both of our communities feel hope for the future. Engage sponsored a hate crimes bill and a resolution that you, Haley, um, helped to pass while working in the Senate. Also, both the Jewish Democratic Council of America and Engage supported the recent resolution that passed in the House condemning anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and intolerance in all forms. Do you want to talk about um, the partnership that helped pass that legislation? And then what are some other areas of partnerships um, that you can discuss with us? I work for Senator Kamala Harris, and so she she obviously was, was leading that effort. But um, as we know, nothing can get done in Congress without bipartisan support. So this was a collaborative effort uh, between her and Senator Rubio, um, and others on both sides of the aisle to condemn the rise of hate crimes in our country. And, and much more has been done since then, though, though not enough uh, in terms of meaningful legislation. This was a, a non-binding resolution, but it was, the, it was a declaration that it was unacceptable, um, which was important. Uh, similarly, um, very recently, there was a resolution that was passed in the House uh, condemning the rise of uh, anti-Semitism and talking about some root causes of anti-Semitism and defining anti-Semitism uh, to include the kind of generalizations that I, I talked about that were uh, deeply offensive uh, and dangerous in our view. Um, but importantly, it also included a denunciation of Islamophobia, of uh, racism, and of other forms of intolerance which are unacceptable. JDCA and MGH both supported this resolution as it, as it passed, which was uh, this broad denunciation of hatred and intolerance in all of its forms to include the kind of hatred that our two communities have felt so deeply um, and are so concerned about. So this was a, a good example of partnership. And importantly, uh, I will just note that the Democratic Caucus was unified uh, behind this resolution, they they unanimously supported it, um, and the same could not be said for the Republican caucus, where 23 Republicans voted against it. What would be even more meaningful would be to hear uh, that kind of denunciation from uh, from the White House, and for there to be meaningful steps taken within the Department of Justice and elsewhere in the administration to actually uh, take action to ensure that 
this rise of hate crimes uh, is addressed and uh, that our communities are more secure. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so while I'm going to let you um, close off um, the session um, by talking about the hate crimes bill that Engage sponsored, and if you have any thoughts about the most recent bill that was passed in the House, um, I think it was last month, um, and then I'll close it off with some just giving your contact info and things like that. Thank you. Uh, one of the things, the first thing we did uh, after the general election is we pushed for the passage of a uh, landmark resolution to recognize the rampant rise in Islamophobia as well as hate crimes against the Muslim community, as well as other religious and ethnic communities, including uh, uh, Jews, uh, members of the Sikh community, African Americans, and others. But I believe in the first resolution that specifically cited um, hate crimes and attack and rhetoric against Muslim Americans. And thanks to the support of coalition partners, including uh, our friends on the Hill, and, and, and that's where Haley was working for us, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, we were able to uh, get this resolution passed both the House and the Senate. You know, we're very proud of this work. Uh, uh, we have recognized uh, the problem of hate crimes uh, as something that that's because it's an attack against an entire people, not just the immediate person uh, is, it is uh, targeting. Thus, it deserves a special category of, of punishment. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I think we had a great discussion. Looking forward to get the audience's um, thoughts on a lot of this. So make sure that if you're liking what you hear, that you um, follow our podcast, which is um, available every Tuesday at the end of the day on all podcast platforms. Before we sign off, Haley and Wild, can you provide your social media platforms and where people can find you? Sure. So our organization is uh, on Twitter at US Jewish Dems. Uh, we are on Facebook uh, at Jewish Democratic Council of America or at Jewish Dems. And um, we are on Instagram at Jewish Dems. I would also just say in closing that um, I I would love to see um, other examples of partnerships like ours. Um, and if other Jewish and Muslim leaders want to join us, uh, perhaps we could uh, have an even larger conversation. Um, I know, I know. Importantly, there is a Jewish Muslim Alliance. Uh, which is a very important organization. Um, but this kind of informal uh, coming together and discussion is, is very important, and we look forward to seeing others do it as well. Thanks, Haley. While do you want to give the M-Gage shreds? So we are on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. Um, our uh, civic engagement and civic education organization, Engage, can be found at Engage USA uh, on all of these platforms and our uh, advocacy organization Engage Action can also be found under Engage Action. Thank you guys so much for your time and join us next week for a whole new panel of guests. <laughs>